Welcome to the Rural Futures Podcast. I'm Caitlin, producer of the show, and this special episode for our season two finale features the executive directors of the University of Nebraska's four institutes, the Buffett Early Childhood Institute, the Doherty Water for Food Global Institute, the National Strategic Research Institute, and of course, yours truly, the Rural Futures Institute. Thanks to this collaboration, RFI Interim Executive Director and Chief Futurist, Dr. Connie Reimers-Hild, brings forward conversations about the future in the Institute's mission areas of early childhood development, food and water security, and combating weapons of mass destruction. As always, I ask that you do your part to raise these bold voices for rural, leave a review so new listeners can find us, and consider sponsoring our show by visiting ruralfutures.nebraska.edu slash podcast. No tax-deductible donation is too small. Thanks so much and enjoy the show. Rural Futures, the podcast where we connect thought leaders and doers at the intersection of technology and what it means to be human. Every episode, we talk with entrepreneurs, researchers, and achievers to create impact for generations to come. First up, Dr. Sam Mizells of the Buffett Early Childhood Institute. Welcome back to the Rural Futures podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Connie Reimers-Hild. And I'm really excited today to have Dr. Sam Mizells on with us. Dr. Mizells is the founding executive director of the Buffett Early Childhood Institute and also holds the Richard D. Holland Presidential Chair in Early Childhood Development. Welcome to the podcast, Sam. Thank you, Connie. It's a pleasure to be here. We're really excited to have you on because not only are you a prolific leader, the Buffett Early Childhood Institute is doing prolific work. First, tell our audience a little bit more about who you are. Well, I am a transplant to Nebraska. I came here five years ago to start up the Buffett Early Childhood Institute, and I live in Omaha. And we're really excited to have you here in Nebraska, and would love to have you tell us a little bit more about the Buffett Early Childhood Institute you know, what's the mission, what's the vision, and what impact are you working to achieve? Sure. The, the Buffett Institute is what is known at the university as a four-campus institute. The University of Nebraska has campuses at the Medical Center in Omaha, at UNO and UNL, of course, and UNK. And we have responsibilities across all four of those campuses. Our vision is that Nebraska will be the best place in the nation to be a baby. And uh, our job is to make that happen. So we describe our mission as that of transforming the lives and education of young children, especially those at greatest risk. Now tell us a little bit, too, about the approach Buffett uses to do this. Because in a very short time, you've really been able to make great progress in this space. And I'd also like for you to tell us not just about your progress, but, you know, why people care so much. You know, how does it affect what happens now and into the future? Why do people care? Well, th- this is, of course, one of the wonderful things about being in the field of early, early childhood, early childhood development. People care about kids. They care about young children. The people of Nebraska especially care about young children. One of the very first things that we did was to partner with Gallup to do a statewide survey of attitudes, knowledge, and belief of Nebraskans about early care and education, which is the term that we apply to uh, all of those programs that serve young children and families, children between birth and age eight, or really third grade. We were pleased to see that uh, we did get very good response. In fact, Gallup said that uh, proportionately for the number of surveys that were distributed, we had one of the highest return rates on a survey of this kind that they've ever had. More than 7,000 people responded to the survey. And they said that they are very supportive of early care and education, that they believe that more has to be done, that quality is suffering in early care and education, that there is not enough of that high quality care. And when it is available, high quality care is very expensive. And in the last two or three decades, we've learned 
how important the early years are to the, the growth of uh, social capital, of our ability to be successful citizens and successful in life. We've learned that more and more extensively through research. And we've also learned about how brain development occurs in great proportion more in early childhood than any other time of life. So the importance of these years is something that very few people, if anyone, would dispute. Now the question is, what should we and can we do to help young children reach their potential? And that's what we're trying to do at the Institute. You, you also asked, Connie, what we're focusing on and how we have had some impact already. When I came, I decided that we needed to be very focused or else we wouldn't accomplish very much. We identified two programs, two kinds of levels of activity uh, that we call signature programs. One has to do with a challenge of closing the achievement gap between children who are coming from homes that are well-resourced in terms of experience and education of parents, and in many cases because of the financial resources available, as contrasted to children coming from low-resourced families. So our goal is to try to close that gap in achievement and in opportunity. That's one of our signature programs. And the other has to do with the early childhood workforce. So these two areas represent a great deal of the effort and uh, we're starting to see some real impact as a result. At the Rural Futures Institute, this is a major challenge for people living in rural communities. I love how Buffett's really focused yet holistic realizing that we need to be able to have high quality care, but also access just in general to that care if we want to have vital communities, whether rural or urban. So tell us a little bit about the model of engagement that you are using to really help lift this important issue to the forefront, but then also create action to create a positive future for our state. With the early childhood workforce area, we've convened a commission of more than 40 state leaders, people from many different uh, areas of activity. Some are people in business, some are people in higher education, some are actual providers of care to young children. We have folks in, in the world of philanthropy and certainly people from state departments of education and HHS, all of those people coming together on a quarterly basis or more often to help us identify how we can build a workforce here that's more skilled, more informed, and more diverse than uh, exists right now. How we can increase public awareness and acceptance and demand for high quality. And that will lead to better compensation, we hope, for early childhood workers. And then that will lead to higher qualifications to demand for more people to come here and work. So demand is a big issue for us. We know that in small communities in the state of Nebraska, where there is an absence and there are many that don't have many early childhood programs, let alone equality programs, that this could be a key to economic vitality of those small communities. In other words, if a community lacks quality childcare, many people who are of childbearing years, many people who are parents of young children, will not want to live there or cannot live there. And consequently, the efforts of, of businesses to attract and retain workers becomes very challenging. That's something we want to learn more about and use that as a lever to bring to our state legislature and to our executive branch here in the state to say, we all know this is important to children's development. We actually see a literal return on investment but for that return, you have to wait until th this child becomes older. But in an immediate way, we can make a difference in communities by having high-quality care present for those who want to work there and who want to stay in that community. That's absolutely right. I mean, just as a family that lives in a rural area ourselves, when we had our first child, you know, the first thing you do is you try to go find, like, high-quality care. And you, you look around and you're like, wait a second, what are we going to do here? 
reports will tell you, even like keeping women in the workforce, what you're competing with is childcare. Well, that's what you're competing with. So if we want people gainfully employed, working to their full potential, but also wanting to move, because people aren't going to move just for a job. They're trying to put their whole life together. And this is an issue that has been a sticking point for so long because it's not just about is there access, because we didn't know anyone in that community either. And so if we couldn't find a high quality daycare and a lot of it so then goes to home daycare or even completely unlicensed where you're just basically dropping your child off with somebody who's home during the day. Right. What we want to work toward is that childcare shouldn't be thought of as a transaction. In other words, here's a place where I know I can get enough hours that I'll be able to go to work, but as a relationship as some place where we know that this is where our children will thrive. And as a consequence of thriving, we can have peace of mind. It will help us. More than 80% of children age five and younger are in some form of a paid childcare in this state. And 62% of women who have infants, mothers of infants, are in the workforce. So these are really very important statistics because some people say, well, listen, you know, nah, children, they belong at home with their mom. And for some women, that is the choice they want to make. And I'm deeply supportive of that. But for other women, either it's not the choice because they want to work. It's very, very important to who they are, or they have to work because they can't afford to keep their family going the way they, they need to if they're not working. Everyone says children are by far the most important element of, of our world, of our society. And yet, we pay, on average, someone with a BA who works in childcare in the state of Nebraska, we pay them a little more than $19,000 per year to work full-time. So the competition there is Wendy's, and it's Target, and it's other things that are valuable, but they don't do this specialized work that's so important to us. This is an excellent point. Again, how are we going to value this? And I mean really value it so that people are able to use their talent in that space and really grow a career. So it is a transformation for their career if they're caring for these children. And these children and their families really have long-term positive impact. And again, in those rural communities, if we're going to hope to keep people or even grow those communities, we need that quality care to exist and we need people to be employed at a livable wage that really helps their own family live a quality life if they're going to work in the space. That, that's exactly right. Now, the financial side of this is very important. It costs more to put an infant in full-time childcare than it does 18 years later to enroll that child at the University of Nebraska at Lincoln. You know what? I love that point because people aren't talking about that enough. I know when we had two kids in daycare, it was extremely difficult. I mean, the, the check you're writing for that every month is, is substantial. And then you start, you know, making those trade-offs and decisions. Is this a high quality enough situation where it's worth writing the check or, or do I make a transition or does my husband make a transition? I mean, it really does affect all of those life choices that you have to make. It does. And the private sector, namely mom and dad, as you're pointing out, has a very, very difficult time covering the cost and sometimes simply cannot cover the cost. On the other hand, turning this over to the public sector is a bridge too far. It's asking too much. We need a mixed source of support for this, but one that recognizes that high quality childcare and high quality workers in childcare don't come cheap. None of that comes cheap. Any more than a high quality third grade teacher or an 11th grade physics teacher, any more than those people come cheap. They shouldn't and they don't. And we have to build a demand in our communities for our state as a whole to take on this issue and look for the sources for this to redistribute dollars, to look to philanthropy, to look to private sector, to look to the public sector, to make the early years of life, to give it the kind of credit that we give it in words, but not sufficiently in deeds. 
Sam, with that in mind, I'd love for you to put your futurist hat on. You know, I just came back, you know, I was on a panel in Paris at an international women's summit where we really talked about a lot of these types of issues. You know, how are we going to create the communities and cities and life experiences of the future that help empower women? You know, that was the focus of this conference, but this is really about empowering many people, employees, children, families, communities themselves. So how do you see this evolving? This is the change we need. As we all do, we want this state and this nation to thrive. We want our citizens to thrive. This is a critical step for us to take. Other statistics tell us that more than a quarter, in fact, in the state of Nebraska, some estimates are as high as 40%, of children under age five are at risk for problems and failure in school. Now, we cannot afford to have that many children bring the number down to 25%, bring it down to 20% or even lower. We cannot afford to have those many children failing in school. It's our job to do something about that. It no longer makes sense, well, these kids just need to study harder and uh, go out and get a job. They are at a disadvantage because of the kind of experiences they have early on in life, experiences in preschool, in kindergarten, and all the way through. This is our responsibility, and this will change our lives if we make a commitment of that kind. I love your passion around this, but also, you know, you've really advanced the understanding and science around this through your leadership and scholarship and and creativity. So I'd love you to also tell our listeners a little bit about your leadership style. How are you leading this charge? What does it take to do this type of work? Well, I'm very fortunate that I have wonderful people who are working with me. And of course, I came here and I was employee number one. So uh, that gave me this great opportunity to search and find wonderful people to join with me. And part of my job description, at least in my head, is to provide a vision and a direction. My job is to help them see that there's another step to take. And it's something that would be gratifying in the extreme for them and for all of us. So I think that that is a big part of my leadership style. I'm the kind of person who doesn't really think about the kind of leader, you know, in a a typical typology. I don't even know what that is. I just do the best I can. I also try to lead by example and by modeling. I'm a person who lives and breathes this all day long and shares it with as many people as I can. It's very important to us here as a university, part of the university, that our work reflect the best knowledge available and be supported by research and by evidence. And Sam, on that note, what words of wisdom would you like to leave our audience with today? Words of wisdom are hard to come by. Uh, (laughs) I I would say, but I'll give you this. (laughs) I'll give you my words of wisdom. My words of wisdom is that there's nothing more important we can do than care for our children in the best ways that we know how. And when we're not doing that, we are not doing, I think, what we're here to do in this world. And we have a long way to go. Well, thank you. I think those are amazing words of wisdom and be anxious to get that feedback from our audience because I know this is going to be a hot topic for them. Now, Dr. Peter McCormick of the Doherty Water for Food Global Institute. Joining me today is Dr. Peter McCormick, Executive Director of the Doherty Water for Food Global Institute. Welcome to the podcast, Peter. Thank you, Connie. Glad to be here. Water is a big issue here in Nebraska, but also around the world. So tell us a little bit more about the Institute. You know, what's its purpose? What, what's its mission? What's it doing? Well, the Doherty Water for Food Global Institute uh, was established with the mission of achieving a water and food secure world. It's a very bold ambition, but I think it was really based on a, a foundation of the university and the state more widely and in addressing these sort of challenges and how this could be better addressed in the state, but also really shared with nationally and internationally. So the Institute partners with the university, partners with the natural resource districts here in the state, and works with different countries, with other states in the United States, to to look at what are the solutions, what are the things that we can learn from Nebraska, what are the things we can learn from elsewhere, and how can we really address something that 
it's really challenging. Agriculture and water is it, it, really uh, requires local solutions. So how do we transfer that knowledge from one context to the next? And, and the, the Institute really in the middle of that, trying to bring the different partners together, trying to uh, uh, focus on where we can actually come up with viable solutions and, and share such ideas. Well, and water can be a challenging issue. You know, it's either lack of it, you know, there's the quantity aspect, but also the quality aspect of it. But also nothing can live without water. And so I think the work that you do is so critically important in terms of how are we going to continue to feed a growing population and make sure that our water resources are a key part of that, but also that there's enough to make this happen. Yes. And often the, the water quantity and the water quality are very closely linked. I mean, where there's water scarcity, or it, we may have a lot of water, but if it's contaminated either naturally or man-made, that means we can't use it the way we'd like to use it. And so it becomes much more difficult to find the, the water that's the best that we want to use for either human consumption or growing crops or, or for our ecosystems. Well, I know you've had a very robust career. You, you've lived in many different countries and you've studied this in so many different places. So tell us a little bit about Dr. Peter McCormick. How did you evolve over time and get to where you are now here in Nebraska? I'm from, as you can tell from my accent, I'm not quite from Nebraska. I actually grew up in a, a rural part of southwest Scotland on a family farm, beef, sheep and dairy in those days, growing some crops. So I, I, I learned about agriculture at a very young age. Uh, my family are all still, my brothers are all still farmers in that area. I think there we had too much water was generally the problem. So that certainly wasn't what got me interested in water. But as I then went off to college and learned about the topics, engineering and agriculture, and became interested in water, I, I also had an interest in working internationally. Went off really lo looking at in different countries and working in different countries. I came to the United States to do my master's at Colorado State, which was very strong in that, in that area at the time. So, and I ended up working on the Ogallala Aquifer in Yuma County in uh, Colorado on the Ogallala Aquifer way back then. I, I developed a, a strong interest in interdisciplinary efforts, really looking at solutions uh, as an engineer, but also the social aspects of it, the economics, the, the natural resources management, uh, and really, yeah, solutions oriented. And, and subsequently, I met my wife in Colorado, and we moved around the world, spent about half our time overseas, half our time back in the U.S., but working in many countries, looking at the issues, really trying to develop solutions with the ministers, the farmers, the decision makers in, in those areas in the Middle East, in South Asia, Southeast Asia, and, and Africa. So tell us a little bit about your leadership approach you know, to making things happen in this space when you have a lot of competing interests, a lot of different ideas. What does that look like? Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest challenge is we end up with this very complex environment we're working in around water and agriculture and different opinions. But how do you come up with solutions that people can agree on, but are also clearly communicated so that we can move forward to address the issues at hand? I think uh, I've always been quite mission focused. I've been curious, but quite passionate and maybe rather oddly so, but very passionate about this space. I think this is another part of that is really emphasizing outcomes. I think one of the fortunate things about working with different stakeholders, when you're working with the farmers, you're in the field, you're dealing with all the investments they've made, and they're not interested in the theory of what you're doing. They're interested in what is the practical application of this, and does it actually help them manage what is going on? And, and this is true of, of a farmer here. It's true of a farmer elsewhere in the world. They're really looking at how can they use the knowledge we have to actually apply in their situation. But then I come back to always thinking what my father would say in terms of a specialist coming in from outside trying to give me advice, that really trying to understand them and, and get them on board. So I think this is part of my, my leadership style would be, and, and I probably didn't realize this early on, but it's really learning to listen and, and appreciate the people you're working with. Uh, I think relationships and how you deal with people and how you build that, that's absolutely critical. I think we tend to get tied up in the sort of maybe the panic of the moment and, and forget really that you've really got to build those relationships and those connections and the credibility. I've worked in many different settings and many different cultures and how do you balance all those things out and still manage to achieve the outcomes you're trying to do. Sometimes it's adjusting the outcomes that we find out that 
what we're trying to do isn't the right answer. And other times it is trying to convince and, and take some ideas forward that perhaps are, are not as popular with some of the, the people involved, but trying to bring them around and, and get them to understand. I've seen those play out in different parts of the world. We're learning to delegate, but not just delegate the responsibility, but delegate the authority to people, giving them the room mm. to actually get on with what they, they need to do. Many of the people you're working with are very skilled at what they do. They have many insights that you don't have. And giving them the authority and the room to really um, address the issue at hand. I think leaders are comfortable delegating responsibility, but for true innovation to happen, really need to delegate that authority as well, right? I mean, really empower people, you know, make sure you're surrounded with good people and you have great people on the team, but if they can't leverage their talents and resources and grow as leaders themselves, it's really hard to advance an organization forward in this day and age of continuous change and the need for innovation. As a leader, especially in an area like water, you have a lot going on, a lot on your plate all the time. So delegation is a part of that. We also have to keep yourself fresh. So tell us a little bit about what you like to do for fun. I've got lots of interests uh, and it's a challenge when you move regularly, I think my wife and I have lived in about 25 houses since we've been married, and that's in many countries. And so your hobbies and interests sort of have to morph a little as you move because you, you can't necessarily do things that you like to do. I'm a keen motorcyclist. Unfortunately, in Nebraska, we've got about five months where that's not really a great area of interest. But uh, I very much keep up with current affairs. I've become quite keen on history and both my intent is something I tend to look into in the context I'm living in. So from whether it's Scotland or Sri Lanka, or, or now I'm quite interested in Nebraska and, and people have got me uh, really looking at the Oregon Trail and, and the state and understanding more about the state. And that's uh, an area where I, I draw a lot of relaxation, shall we say, a diversion from my work. But they all kind of interrelate in the end. And my family, I'm also quite keen on my spaniels and my dogs. That's good. Me too. We share that definitely. I tell you, it's amazing how important uh, dogs have become in our lives. <laughs> <laughs> They're essential. We've moved them around the world with us. One question I'm curious about, you know, we get asked this a lot at the Real Futures Institute too. You know, why a Water for Food, a global institute around this issue in a place like Nebraska? I don't think it could have happened anywhere else, to be honest. I mean, that's the first time I've actually answered that question this way, because I have been asked this question, and I, I do think it requires the leadership at the university level, but at the state level, the people who have supported the Doherty Foundation, uh, uh, the presence of the university here, who, who previous president and the new president, really seeing this as, as important. I think Nebraska, very early on in the, in the 70s, realized the importance of managing the groundwater and, and establishing the natural resource districts. Agriculture has clearly been a, an important part of the culture in, in the state since its founding. And, and I think that translates into leadership and support at the highest level in the state, that even across different political uh, differences, that this is seen as a priority. I, I was asked recently in a conference how this could be emulated. I think it's realizing that the state or the entity, the area you're in, really needs to put agriculture very central to the issues on water. That if they don't do that, it's very difficult to emulate what Nebraska's done. So I, I do think it's Nebraska playing on its strengths. And it's Nebraska playing on what has been the investments in, in these sectors. And I think there's a lot the world can learn from Nebraska. But again, not prescriptions to go out and solve the world's problems, but to understand what is important to get these things to align and be able to address the challenges in producing food with less water. I'd love for you to put your futurist hat on, Peter, and tell our audience how you see the area of water for food evolving into the future research just demonstrates how water and agriculture, the management over the last 30, 40 years has really been quite groundbreaking in producing good results. Again, there are challenges. We talked about water quality earlier. To quote one of my faculty fellows here is basically the future is bright on the sort of technology and these areas promise a lot. There's many things we can be looking at, but uh, certainly there's what we're seeing is the use of water, the crops, the livestock, 
the way that food is produced here, I think these are areas where we can build on what, what has been done so far and certainly uh, continue to evolve those areas in the future. I think it's an important mindset to have, right? So when we talk about the future at the Rural Futures Institute, you know, realizing that we need to have a strengths-based approach that includes an abundance mindset. We know there are challenges, but if we continue to just talk about and focus on those challenges, we're not going to be able to move forward in a way that provides those solutions and outcomes that you were talking about earlier. I'm an optimist. Many other parts of the world would be quite envious of the assets that we have here in Nebraska. So I think these are the things to focus on. I do think around technologies and ideas that there's more to do in that space. I was recently in discussions with partners around the agriculture technology and the challenges in changing agriculture technology, that it's an area where it's been difficult for external actors to really get involved. But we're now seeing many other sectors in terms of mainly the high-tech sectors beginning to look at agriculture much more seriously and, and how they can get involved in developing the technologies and making them more available. There's big challenges there on making sure the technologies are what the farmers or the users need. And really, again, this conversation, understanding what agriculture is all about and engaging with agriculture and, and looking for the understanding the issue before you develop the solution, I think is an important part of it. The other thing is that we've developed a lot of technologies, there's good ideas, but they're not necessarily taken up by the users the way we expect. And I think there, it's not just the technology that we need to be focusing on going forward. It's really the social science, the behavior, really focusing on why these things aren't happening and asking the tough questions and realizing that maybe that technology was just not destined to be used in the way that the original people thinking that idea up or there's maybe another solution we need to be looking at that may not be less technological, but maybe along the lines of institution like the natural resource districts and organizations like that. So I love this interaction between human use and you know, the social piece, but in the realization that not technology alone is going to solve things, you know, people have to be willing to use it. It has to fit within their system. Do you have an example that you could share around that? We are in a time now where we have these decision support systems that can be made accessible to farmers or to decision makers from the satellite imagery, from the use of drones, although again, that's an area where we, we really need to sort out some of the regulations and so forth around it. And they certainly won't address all the issues that we imagine they, they might address, but it's really that information and making that information accessible. So we have a lot of data in Nebraska. It's with farmers, it's with natural resource districts, but there's also a lot of sensitivities around the data. And how do we access that? So it really, the innovation and the technology is we've got a lot of this available, but how do you really tease that out and what is really available and who can use it, but then put it in a form that really integrates into the agricultural system. Now we, we have some of that, and we've got a plethora of apps being developed for phones, but most farmers or most users don't have time to interpret those multiple apps. So really bringing that together, how do we integrate that technology? I'd love for you to share some words of wisdom with our audience. Words of wisdom. Uh, never share words of wisdom. That's one word of wisdom. <laughs> I think in the end, it's going to come down to people and how people work together, but also how, how we get the next generation engaged in these areas. There's a term that's been picked up in Africa by the president of the African Development Bank that I think is hugely important. It's making agriculture cool, making the, the roles in agriculture and in water, creating the opportunities to attract the younger leadership and the younger leaders into these, these areas. I think it is an area that is complicated. It does require a deep but general understanding of a number of topics. And that's becoming quite difficult in this day and age to really, I think the information's there, but you need to have the curiosity and the opportunity to explore that. So in the end, I think the words of wisdom is probably invest in the, the next generation. I love it. Invest in the next generation and make agriculture cool. Welcome General Robert Hinson of the National Strategic Research Institute. I'm Bob Henson. I'm the executive director for the National Strategic Research Institute. I just happen to be retired general officer, so I've been with the university since 2012 now. I just want to thank you for your service and all that you do. I don't even know how much gratitude I can even extend to somebody like you who's made a career out of service, but also has helped so many 
do that and protect our freedom. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. Well, so I'm so patriotic that, uh, you know, you start talking about service and those thing, kind of things. I tear up. My wife accuses me of getting teary-eyed at uh, Kmart openings if there's a patriotic theme associated with it. It's okay. I'm actually kind of teared up right now myself, so that's just fine. Well, we'd like to talk a little bit about NSRI, and we'll use that term throughout our interview, but this is the National Strategic Research Institute, which is a sister institute to the Rural Futures Institute. And I know when I met you, I could tell right away that you were a total futurist because of the way you were talking and the amazing work of NSRI. Could you tell us a little bit more, Bob, about what the purpose of NSRI and the mission? NSRI uh, was started in 2012 through the University of Nebraska's uh, conversation with U.S. Strategic Command. There was a significant responsibility picked up by STRATCOM that uh, was focusing on combating weapons of mass destruction, which categorizes chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear, and in our regard here, pandemics and or threats like that that can be weaponized. So the university put in a proposal to take on the responsibility as a university-affiliated research center the basic fundamental uh, levels of research that support the Department of Defense across those mission domains. Through the work that we've done with the university, it's really concentrated on research that supports uh, the various aspects of preventing and or finding ways of identifying those threats before they become a problem. And so we've undertaken a considerable amount of research in the past six years We've actually had over 25 different uh, sponsoring agencies with now in the neighborhood of 83 different task order contracts working on a variety of uh, of research projects that go from infectious disease all the way to sensor technologies and how UAVs and those kind of things can be used in, in the future. Uh, and that's an extremely broad scope. There's so many physical aspects to it, like the UAVs, et cetera weapons of mass destruction, but also the cybersecurity. Cyber is pretty daunting when you look at the overall effects that it can generate and the things that it can do to our society in day-to-day practical terms because everybody relies on some form of technologies these days that through the phones or through communications devices or through satellite connections and those kind of things and all of those combine sort of at the front end of the threat spectrum when you start dealing with things that currently you have to think about given that technologies have so advanced that these become areas of concern across the board. And I think those are the kinds of things that the Department of Defense and other agencies and research we do is not just for the Department of Defense, but largely focused on the whole threat spectrum that might begin with a cyber type attack. Well, I'm going to ask you to put your futurist hat on between your military service and now serving as the executive director of NSRI. How do you see this whole evolution happening into the future with regard to cybersecurity and technology in particular? We've had some projects uh, working with some agencies with regard to port security. If you look at the ports of the United States and the amount of goods that are brought in through shipping or airlines or those kind of things, we've taken on some research to really look at the gaps and the vulnerabilities associated with how technology manage the navigation into those ports and then the distribution of goods. The other thing that we've uh, been involved in from a cyber perspective is really looking at how the new commands and all of the commands and the agencies rely on a variety of communications technologies and satellite coverage and navigation systems uh, to execute missions and or uh, the economy and any number of things. So my futuristic look I would, uh, would suggest is we've got to think about how we protect and how we operate in times of denial when those services are denied to the average American and what that ripple effect then would constitute and how it would affect the troops that are deployed, their families that that are located at home, the communities that we operate in, the day-to-day banking, the day-to-day uses that we use for 
different kinds of things and cyber uh, on the front end, really uh, people take it for granted. But as we look to the future, it's going to become more and more prevalent. If you think about driverless cars and airplanes and a number of things that on horizon and how comfortable and confident would you be in a driverless car knowing that somebody could penetrate the system and take control of that vehicle. But technology is great. We just have to think more about the consequences of technology being denied in some of those circumstances. You know, I think this is such a critical conversation for so many different reasons because technology is sort of the big topic for a lot of futurists. However, I mean, there's this humanity part around technology as well that I think isn't being talked about enough. Now, you've had a pretty robust career in terms of you know, serving as a lieutenant general, and I understand you're now retired, but that military career has been prolific. And now, you know, being at the university, so tell us a little bit about your personal leadership style as it relates to the work you've done and that you're doing now. My leadership style, boy, that's another tough question. <laughs> I, you know, I, I served 33 years uh, on active duty. I, I started out as a young enlisted airman in the Air Force uh, in the Vietnam era. I, I grew up uh, flying airplanes after that, got into Space Command and various assignments throughout my career. A lot of my career in my latter years from about 1985 to when I retired in 2012 were always command level opportunities. And so in those positions, you learn to, one, rely on people. You have to trust and rely on people who are standing beside you and behind you and supporting you and and obviously guiding you. I think it's a matter of building trust and creating relationships with your colleagues and comrades and arms that makes a difference. Now, through my years, I really trusted people. I think you have to trust that when you train people to do a job that they are going to execute that job. And you trust them to do that job until the point where they fail to do what you've asked them to do or trained them to do. I think in the same light, if you go into any kind of operation or any kind of a business where you're trying to micromanage everything, uh, you are fraught with danger and failure. And my style is building trust in people I hire, building investment in people who share in the goals that you've established and want to succeed. They want to make it grow. And I think that's where NSRI has been very successful. I don't control anybody. I rely on researchers and faculty members within the university. I rely on people that I've hired within my staff to serve on the behest of the university and and our sponsors and the like. It requires that level of trust and involvement and expectations that people will do more than you ask of them if you give them the tools and the responsibility and accountability for doing it. And I honestly believe that. I've grown up believing that and I've tried to use that as a segue for everything I do, uh, even at the point of where I'm leveraging people that you have to rely on them to do the job because you can't do it yourself. Yeah, that's just brilliant. And I, I think what I really respect is that you have this amazing presence, but you're also so personable and that you really care about people. And I think that comes through in just your discussion and philosophy around leadership you know, you trust people and you understand that they're going to do more than you ask if you have that trust and you give them the tools, but you really empower people to do their jobs and use their talent. And we need more leaders to do that. Well, if I turn the question around and ask you, I'm not sure that our answers would be uh, very different. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. I think our listeners would really enjoy hearing a little more of your personal philosophy in life. I mean, here you are, executive director of NSRI, and you know, you see a lot and you hear a lot. I mean, you're thinking about things so many of us take for granted every day and seeing the inside of it, but also the future of things like national security, cybersecurity, weapons of mass destruction, even working with the Med Center on Ebola. So what do you do for fun? Like, what does a guy like you do for fun? You know, what brings joy to your life when you're thinking about these types of things all day long? 
Well, I have a wife who keeps me humble and honest. Uh, I have uh, seven grandchildren that uh, keep me going, and two of them are here locally, and they're two little girls that keep you going. So we spend a lot of time with them. I'm a farmer's kid. Uh, you know, I grew up on a farm in Tennessee. My dad sort of instilled a work ethic that I even hold today. So, you know, I find myself more of a hands-on kind of person that likes to get things uh, done with my hands. And so I do woodworking. I don't think there's, well, I know there are limits on what I can and can't do. But I, I often fail to recognize those things that I can't do very much. <laughs> so, But I'm willing to give it a try. And uh, Knowing that you're from a rural community, you know, so many of our military come from rural communities. That's one of the things we've talked a little bit about at the Rural Futures Institute. You know, when people ask about why rural, why now, why should we care about rural, you know, somebody who comes from a rural community and has that background, what would you say to that? I really appreciated the years that I spent as a young lad growing up on a farm in Tennessee. I, I spent some considerable hours uh, sitting on the street corner selling watermelons and cantaloupes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, things I didn't know about you. You just, you just get cooler by the second. <laughs> but I do agree with you that a lot of the foundation of our country is built around rural communities. And the cities and the, and the life in the cities, are they've never slowed down. They continue to fast pace. But when you start looking at the morals of the country and the foundation of this country. You look at the what's happening in the rural communities and all the people that you talk about service to the country, uh, people in rural environments that are really the foundation of this country. And having grown up in a rural community, I consider it one of the very solid foundations of the country. At the Rural Futures Institute, one of the conversations we've really been focused on is this rural-urban collaboration. And I just returned from a 10-day excursion in Japan where we had a really immersive experience in rural areas there because their national government has declared rural development and redevelopment as a national priority. They see the struggles that can happen when they have too many people in one location. And so they're really trying to figure out, okay, what does it look like so that Tokyo doesn't become so mega-urbanized that if something happens in Tokyo, most of our population is wiped out. And in one of the areas we visited, they've developed these rice contracts where they're encouraging people from more urban areas to buy rice from the rural areas, but also as sort of a subscription. So if there would be a tsunami or earthquake, they could actually go to those rural areas and have a place to live in major disaster. And I thought that was a really unique and creative way to help connect people in rural and urban. Could you see any value to something like that here? There seems to be this notion that the price of doing work on a farm or a ranch or those kind of things is becoming less attractive because of the economy and the products that we sell and those kind of things is a very volatile market scale. I think the connections between rural and certainly the city environments that we live in these days, there needs to be a good connection, good understanding of that and great benefit that a rural community actually provides to the larger population, if you will. In some ways, we're losing that uh, connection to the real breadbasket of this country and and what constitutes uh, the people that keep us fed and keep the nation and our international relations uh, sort of at the forefront of things. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I just find it there needs to be an increased appreciation of the contributions of those that actually do hard manual labor in the fields of this country. No, I really appreciate that. And you actually, as usual, give me even more to think about in terms of how to help people understand uh, that rural connection in their own life, even if they don't live there. And part of our research has involved the use of UAVs. And you look at uh, GPS navigation systems from space these days and how that has contributed to the increased production of farm products and necessities and all kinds of things that I think rural people in this country are leveraging technologies in ways that have never been leveraged before. And we are getting more productivity out of that. But with that comes a price. You know, we're expanding neighborhoods that take out farmland. We grow things on the sides of hills that in my day, would you would hardly climb it, much less plant something on it. 
And I think the things that the rural communities are finding these days is that with technology, they can increase productivity if they're encouraged by the markets that continue to support them. It is not an inexpensive proposition to be in the rural communities these days if that's what you're using as a source of livelihood and income. I know most of the people on our podcast should know what a UAV is if they're listening to something like the Rural Futures podcast, but oh. <laughs> just for, for those that may not or it may be new, they may be just tuning in, could you explain a little bit more about the unmanned aerial vehicles? Unmanned aerial vehicles have a rather broad uh, perspective. I think in a military, uh, they can be used for gaining the high ground, if you will, looking at what's over the hill or the horizon, what's out in front of you being able to collect intelligence, being able to collect information that's useful in planning of uh, campaigns and those kind of things. It is also a way of expanding the footprint of an operation without having to expand the number of personnel you have to commit to that. In other environments, though, if you look at the uses of UAVs in the agricultural community, it's uh, collecting soil samples on how productive a piece of farmland or land could be collecting samples on uh, water in, uh, in various areas. Uh, I think uh, there's any number of ways that unmanned aerial vehicles can be used in a rural kind of setting. In some of the cases where there are some ideas that unmanned aerial vehicles would deliver packages to your doorstep, there's any number of new things that UAVs will be able to do It has its downsides. Obviously, there are a lot of people who resent the idea that you've got an unmanned aerial vehicle with a camera or a projector of some sort, and they're collecting information and uh, invading your privacy. Again, wave of the future. What are some parting words of wisdom you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, first of all, I thank you for the opportunity to chat with you. I find it refreshing to have this conversation with you. I find that opportunities to collaborate with you and other people like you and and really take advantage of things that you do and others are doing along this line. Being associated with a university, being associated with the people that are in the Nebraska communities and like is the underpinning, I think, of, of what this country is all about. That's a wrap for season two of Rural Futures with Dr. Connie. We couldn't be more proud of the bold researchers, futurists, rural mavericks, and students we've brought forward throughout these 10 episodes. Thank you to all of our guests. And thank you to all of our listeners. Now, help us make season three a reality in spring 2019. Sponsor our show. No tax-deductible donation is too small. Visit ruralfutures.nebraska.edu slash podcast.